Brett McGarry with a couple of days off. Loren McNabb is on vacation. Loren and I will return together on Tuesday. We are off on Monday in lieu of New Year's Day. And if you can keep all that straight, we're going to throw one more fly in the ointment for you. Julie Buckingham is here this Heavy morning. Heavy emphasis on the mm, Buckingham. Mm, Buckingham. Mm. <laughs> I'm just trying to fit in. Yeah, well, you fit in nicely. Square yeah. peg in a round hole. It's great to see you here, Julie. So thanks for uh, stepping into the breach, as we, we I, like to say. I completely forgot there was another, like, three on the clock. Oh, come on now. You are a night owl. I know I you are. You're used to seeing 2 or 3 a.m., but from the other side of it. Yeah, usually. I I, I find as I get older, I'm I'm revising that a little bit, get, going to bed earlier. Yeah, so. like what's early? What What's a normal bedtime for you? Uh, probably 11.30 midnight. Oh, my gosh. Let's see, that feels so late. But you got... Yes, but even when I did mornings, see that I did mornings for twenty years, and um, uh, started in your teens. That's right, and and it's just sort of the two schools of thought, right? Like you either power through all day and go to bed at you know seven o'clock at night, or there was my school of thought, which was get the heck out of there when you're done, go home and nap for three nap air quotes for three four hours, get up, and then I would stay up till ten thirty eleven o'clock at night. And then get up and do the morning show and lather, rinse, repeat. So you would do basically split your yeah. sleeps in half? Oh, yeah. I'm sure that was very, very healthy way to Super. go about things. Um, and not to top things all off, not only have you traded in working with Richard Cluche for working with me, you can give the report cards after <laughs> the program as to which you prefer or, or who's uh, better to work with. But you've traded a two-hour shift today yes. for a four-hour shift, so I'm really this sorry about really that. This is a really bad deal. I it didn't even think deal. about that And I didn't bring now. donuts or anything, so I apologize. Well, I'll give you my e-transfer afterwards. <laughs> 6.39. It is a Thursday morning. At least we think it's Thursday as we make our way through the last several days of 2022. And yeah, we will have some fun this morning. But, of course, there are serious news conversations to be had this morning. This is one of them as a blockade remains in place at Brady Road landfill. Uh, conversations continue around the search for the remains of at least three Indigenous women, Julie. Global News reporter Drew Stremick looks at what it means for garbage operations in the city and how long the blockade could continue. Since December 18th, protesters have set up camp outside the Brady Road landfill demanding a search to be conducted for the remains of Indigenous women killed by an alleged serial killer and other possible unknown victims. Despite the cold weather experience last week, protesters say they're setting up camp for the long haul and will remain until a search begins. No justice, and if there's no justice, there's no peace. So what I mean by that, we're going to stay here until the voices are heard and that every landfill around here is searched. He did say easing the blockade might be in the cards. While the Brady Road landfill is currently closed to the public, multiple levels of government say they are actively negotiating with members of the blockade and the families of the murdered women in order to find a resolution. Winnipeg City Councillor Brian Mays says that's a good start. It is worth noting that, the, I mean, there is the study that's being funded. I mean, that this isn't simply dismissing the concerns. This is saying, okay, well, what, what, what could that look like? What could that cost? Mays continued, stating the longer the landfill remains closed, the more frustrated city residents become 
and start to call for a return to normal operations at the site. Certainly increasing number of concerns from the public saying do something that this can't this can't carry on. It's not it's not that you have to drive an additional mile to go to the other landfill. There is there is only one landfill in the city of Winnipeg. So this this is uh, this is becoming more of a concern with the public. There are options for Winnipeggers to get rid of their garbage. In an emailed statement, the city says Panat Road and Pacific Avenue 4R sites remain open for recyclable materials, and both residential and commercial customers can contact local private landfill operators in the area to make alternate arrangements until an agreement can be made. Drew Stremick, Global News. So I heard your conversation around this uh, whole Obviously, this is a difficult situation uh, for many members of our Indigenous community, non-Indigenous alike, and now the operations of the city. Conversations need to be have had, understanding needs to be in place, Julie. Mm-hmm. But there are two sides to this in terms of the operation of Brady Road. There are implications long-term if this blockade remains in place in terms of what happens to refuse collection in the city of Winnipeg, as Brian Mays mentioned, not only in that piece, but also in your discussion with you and Richard yesterday, Absolutely. there's only one, one city of Winnipeg refuge, yeah. refuge collection facility. And, and, and I think, you know, there there are, as you say, two sides. There's probably more more sides. I mean, it's such a multifaceted conversation. And, and some of the things we talked to him about was, was who has eyes on our garbage? You know, have you ever really thought about when it gets picked up at your place, then what happens? Does it go directly to the landfill? It, and it really, he said, depends on where it's collected because I think for me and perhaps for others is how do we prevent this from happening in the future? And those are conversations I hope are going to be had um, at some governmental level, at least at some point. But among other things uh, we talked to Mays about was what he'd like to see happen going forward. Well, I mean, I don't support a blockade. I, I do support the feasibility study that the federal government's funding and, and provinces uh, signed off on that as well. And I, you know, I'd certainly like to see some sort of search done. I don't think you can search at all. I think that's, I have no, millions upon millions of dollars on a huge undertaking. Some sort of search, uh, if the feasibility study gives that the green light, I think is worth it. But, you know, I think if, you, if you're asking me, do I support a blockade? No, but, um, I do think I understand that the view here, I understand the context and the history. I think I'm trying to understand it. And so I don't really blame people for being angry and frustrated and uh, in grieving and in mourning for their their loved ones. But uh, we can't we can't have an indefinite blockade. It's our only landfill site. We're going to have to get this resolved um, and and get the, the get the landfill reopened at some point. I liked what the counselor said in particular. I, I, I'm trying to yeah. understand. And I think if we all approach this situation as others with that notion that we don't know everything there is to know, there is more conversation which needs to be had. And I think that's what these blockades are, are doing at this point in time. I know that they're frustrating and maybe even angering some folks. But I've seen some of the video of some of the conversation that's taken place by those who've gone to Brady Road and found this blockade in place. And I think that's maybe the important part of this situation right now is better understanding of of what's wanted, what's being asked for, and what can actually be done. And I think that's where the conversations will go next. As, As, you know, we spoke to Mr. Mays yesterday saying, 
do you have a list of of what this group would like to see? And, and I think it's going to be a starting point. And and the conversations are important. And and as I even said, you know, let's think about how our garbage is handled in the future. I mean, um, the definition of insanity, as they say, is to keep repeating the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I don't want this to happen to any other family going forward. And so what does the city, the province, the federal government need to do to make sure that we're not back in this situation time and time and time again? Puts a pit in my stomach to imagine that we have to make these considerations and technological advances for this reason. I I wish to goodness gracious, we never had to have this discussion ever again, but here we are. And, and well, yeah, there's not much. It's, right? It's, it's it gut-wrenching takes, it takes to even say away. out loud what yeah. the next part of that sentence should be. So maybe we'll just leave it there. Thank you, Julie, for being here this morning. And thank you to our listeners for being with us this this morning. No, it's not, um, you know, PM. No, but it's me. just as dark. It is just as dark. So, so I'll help you out at least on that for, yeah. front. You're moving from the darkness to the lightness. That is the gift of the start versus, you know, that light to darkness when you're working with that Cluche character yeah. in the <laughs> afternoon. So welcome to the light, so to speak. I see the light. We want to talk about returns. And um, we bring this up today because a lot of retailers have had a moratorium on returns. And not all of them, but a lot of them have said, you know, please don't return anything until January 27th, 28th, 29th. There's a window mm-hmm. uh, with, under which or in which the retailers don't want to deal with the stuff you got for Christmas that you didn't really want. Yeah. <laughs> and we know that there's lots of us in in that boat. Uh, but uh, there's always been this uh, story in the, in the retail world, in the customer service world. And I remember hearing it for the first time back in the late 80s. And that was the story of Nordstrom. Nordstrom is a big retailer in the United States. I believe they started in Minnesota and their customer service is top notch. They are measured against all others to a great extent when it comes to customer service. And there's a story that circulated and, and some people believe it to be true. Others say it's folklore. And the bottom line is a customer comes in with four tires to return that they didn't want, didn't fit their vehicle. And the customer service agent very diligently returns the tires and brings them back into the storage area and returns the money, gives the money back to the customer. Well, Nordstrom doesn't sell tires. I was going to say, I was like, they sell mostly clothing and and, and other uh, sundries, (laughs) so to speak, but customer service, is the mantra at Nordstrom. And so I think it's an exaggeration to make a point as to what we're prepared to do for our customers. So I want to talk about returns and your experiences. I had a grandmother who could return anything to any retailer, whether it was purchased there or not. So she was the queen of returns. How about you, Sarah McCarthy? Are you good at at returning stuff? Do you bother? Do you just throw it out? Like, what do you do when you get something you don't like? Honestly, I would be more of the type of person to, like, re-gift it or resell it. Because I feel bad going back to the retailer and being like, here, I don't want this. Give me my money back. So I'd rather, like, repurpose it. But I did recently have an experience with Amazon. So that's your first 
sign not to shop online, I guess. But I was buying some festive, like, coffee pods for my machine. Co- co- coffee. Festive what? Coffee. Oh, like coffee. coffee pods. Okay. Like peppermint. Oh, pods. Bre- yeah, pods. Kay. For, like, uh, Nespresso or Keurig, that type of thing. And uh, they sent me the wrong ones, which I knew I wouldn't be able to return because it's considered food. So I was just like, hey, can you send me, like, the correct ones? And they're like, oh, no, like, you have to just order them again but keep the same ones. But I'm like, how am I going to know? You're just not going to send me the ones I don't want again. So uh, just shop in person. <laughs> did you Did you bother then? No, so, I did not. So, are... so I got the money back and I got free coffee. Like I kept you don't the want. Co- yeah. And you I... just give that away. <laughs> I will. Oh, I will. I was Bring say, it here. Anybody will take it here. <laughs> I was going to say, were you, we want to give a plug to your Facebook marketplace. <laughs> yeah, are exactly. you selling it exactly, on that? Exactly. Ken Poitras, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing okay, doing okay. My my uncle Sam loves to tell the story uh, at a construction site. Uh, he dug this, um, somebody I guess had thought that this level was broken. It had a, a lifelong warranty. Oh, the guy no. obviously threw it away, had no idea. So he goes into the gra- garbage, picks it up, takes it to the store, gets a brand new one. And believe me, he's told me that story about 25, 30, maybe 35 times. <laughs> the fools, they just throw it out. They don't know it's got a lifetime warranty. Hey, <laughs> I got one now. Oh, that's beautiful. So he just follows around people working on construction sites and hope that they're going to well, no, throw was, tools? Or? Was, no, it was with my like, construction <laughs> Just drops just, them like, a key know, to drill? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's just like, you know, there's like garbage, uh, you know, big garbage bins outside of most like uh, new home builds and stuff. And yeah, picked it out of the garage free. They're Canadians yeah. all over uh, North America. Some of them are in very warm locations. Regardless, they want to get back home as hundreds of Canadian travelers are in limbo as one of the country's largest charter operators continues to frustrate those trying to get home, Julie. Global Nationals Nitu Garcha tells us what the Transport Minister Omar Agalbraz said about Canadians who continue to wait for Sunwing to complete a round trip. In a tweet, he says Canadians are patient when it comes to weather disruptions, but they rightly expect their airlines to keep them informed and to manage these disruptions smoothly. Sunwing said this week its return flights continue to be delayed due to displaced crew and aircraft from the aftermath of severe weather disruptions across Canada. In a statement, the Canadian Transportation Agency said it won't comment on this issue because it has all the powers of a superior court and Sunwing's situation may come to be decided by our tribunal. And passengers who believe an airline didn't follow the air passenger protection regulations can file a complaint for potential compensation and refunds. They're not living up to what they're saying that they're doing. They could sit here and say they're sending all these rescue flights. Two, only two rescue flights have come this week. So clearly they're not doing their job. Banji says she hopes Sunwing will be held accountable and improve its communication with customers who feel abandoned by the airline. Neetu Garcha, Global News. So how could all this impact the travel and airline industry in the aftermath of what we're seeing right now? Marty Firestone, president at Travel Secure and a regular guest. I understand here on the start. That is correct. Some developments since you joined Kathy Kennedy about 22 hours ago. Marty, good morning. Thanks for doing this. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Could government be setting the table for more oversight, um, not just for Sunwing, but we've seen these issues happening with all of the, the airlines or at least some parliamentary investigation of what's been happening here in Canada? 
Yeah, it has to. We are actually at the like juncture of a point now where they have to do something or or this cannot continue again. So whether it's fines that are going to be levied or whether they actually force the airline to give the people back their monies for the key here is a lot of people would fly home another way if they could get home if they knew they were getting the money back. I don't know if they're going to get the money back, but that's where it's all at right now. Marty, it's uh, Greg here. On the consumer side, I've got two-part question here. Has our thirst for the lowest possible price, that willingness for us to mix and match operators, to act as our own travel agents, ultimately and finally caught up to us? I'm not sure. You know, you think that these all-inclusive packages are the answer and the price is right and all that, but here's where it fell apart, in my opinion anyway. Sunwing has only X amount of flights that fly from these countries back to Canada and, and, and go to the countries. When something happens like the weather incident we had, it just is a domino cascading effect. They don't have enough planes, enough inventory to go send in extra additional flights, and there's the problem. They can only work with what they have, both with their staffing, pilots, and planes. And there just isn't enough in the case of an emergency. And that's what we had these last three days. So should they have to have those emergency systems in place, those backup plans, redundancy, et cetera? Uh, Or is this just potentially a one-off based on a monster weather system that impacted so many airports? Yeah, I, I call it the perfect storm. There's a reason why they call it that. You had frigid temperatures. You had major snow, not only in Ontario, Manitoba, all of Canada, U.S., North America. That's the problem. I think everything came together on the three busiest days of the year, and that's the key. So could it ever happen again? Boy, long shot chance. But yes, you should have measures in place should it happen again. But I can't in my wildest dreams imagine this could actually show up again next Christmas. So, Marty, when it comes to situations like this, do people really need to understand the difference between travel insurance, be be a trip interruption or, or straight up travel insurance and the pa- air passenger bill of rights? Because I feel like there's a big gap in between those two things. There's a huge gap right off the start. Trip cancellation. You buy a trip for five, six thousand dollars. Nothing in the air passenger right or the airline's refund policy is going to cover the cost of that trip if you don't get down to that cruise ship, if you don't get down to that hotel. That's what trip cancellation insurance is. It will reimburse you if you can't get to that spot. That's number one. Baggage, yes, there's baggage in both cases. Interruption, you have to stay longer, pays for accommodations and flight home. You don't have that anywhere in any of the other air passenger bill or the airline's policy. So in some of these circumstances, um, we're hearing about individuals. For example, um, I believe Global News spoke with a passenger on Sunwing who bought a flight on Sunwing and booked a resort separately. And he was saying, well, I had to, you know, have extra nights in the resort. But to the to the airline, you're you're simply a passenger. We'll put you on the next flight. So again, there's therein lies the a bit of the rub. If if he had been on a package deal, the company would have kept him in our resort until the plane was available to him. And and is that part of the knowledge gap that people don't have? Yeah, it, d- it definitely makes sense. If you're on a package, there is some responsibility. They just can't forget you. But when you're buying just a airfare trip, 
Of course, they have no responsibility, nor do they care about where you're staying for the three nights that they couldn't come and get you and return you home. So you are correct 100%. Marty, there's a lot remains to be unpacked from this discussion, this story, and and these uh, situations, but we've run out of time this morning. Thank you, as always, for your access. We appreciate you immensely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. You too. And uh, Happy New Year, by the way, Marty. Well, I'll try and be uh, one of the first to wish you that. In this case, the small town is typically apropos when Loren McNabb is here. Yes. But today we are going to... Any guesses? Any guesses? Oh, it's it's Minnedosa for sure. If you're bringing Loren McNabb into the equation, it's it's got to be Minnedoha. Your oh, it. your hometown is Rapid City. And as the flow cr- crow That's flies, like twenty minute drive. My grandmother, yes, used to write for the Minnedosa Tribune. There we go. It all comes full See? circle. Ray, the green guy in Minnedosa, joins us now. Ray Ballon. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, and welcome to Minnedosa. It's always great to be in Minnedosa. I've got strong ties there as well, Ray, as you know. Uh, Here's the text from yesterday. The silly auction for a family-sized bag of bugles and a bag of Uncle Ray's chips, neither of which can be bought in Canada now, closed at the Minnedosa Community Christmas Dinner. The high bid was $505 from the Gerards of Elphinstone, but more money came in, a total of $1,170. We need to learn more, yes. Ray. So first of all, uh, whose idea was this to auction off this family size of bugles? Well, it was my idea, but I just read about the bugle craze in the paper in the Brandon Sun, and a lady there had taken a bag of bugles and done some sort of a raffle with it, and I thought, oh, the word fun is in the word fundraising, I can do something with this. So I knew there was people down in in Minna, in North Dakota, friends of mine, Barry and Gary, and and they they could bring back a ba- some bags of bugles for me. So that's how I started. Well, that is amazing. I, I did you did you have a number in mind, or you thought, well, you know, I'd like to make a couple hundred bucks, and, and did this exceed that? Well, every every year we are involved in putting on this Christmas Day dinner committee or the, the dinner, and uh, I thought, well, we could maybe do a silent auction right there as I'm also Woodman, the English butler. And so I thought I'll go around and get people to put the bid up there, and I thought if we got $100, that would be so cool. <laughs> Well, there you go. Underestimating yeah. uh, the value of this. Now, you, there's also this. It's like un- $100 a bugle at this point. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Ray's chips. I'm unfamiliar. Help me, me with too. that. Oh, they're so good. But at, I, I'm a grain buyer. And uh, a lot of people call me Uncle Ray there. Plus Ray, the grain guy. But, but because I saw the Uncle Ray's variety of chips one time, they're made down in Michigan. I... I was able to get quite a few over the last few years and give out to people, uh, to the customers. And there's every different kind of flavor. And on the back, it's got a little chapter of the guy, the real Uncle Ray's life story and some little section about their manners. So it's just hokey stuff like I would do. And uh, so I thought if I put that in and I put uh, the bugles, which everybody wants, I thought I'll have a good 
a good hook for a lot of people. I started a week early. I couldn't wait to the Christmas Day dinner. So it went, I sent a text out to several friends across the prairies, and, and that's what got the bid up so high so fast. Um, well, Uncle Ray, it, this was a fantastic idea, and, and now um, I see Greg furiously writing this down, so every time he crosses the border, he's going to be buying Bugles <laughs> and Uncle Ray chips, and I've added it to my list. Um, any plans to try and top this in the future, buddy? Like, this is a tall order. No, I don't have plans. <laughs> they, they just come to mind as it as it happens, but the my closest plan would be that uh, it can be bigger because we gave half of the money to the local food bank and we gave half to the Canadian Food Grains Bank, which I've been involved for a long time. And a lot of people listening in right now probably were thinking about doing a donation to one or the other or some other cause, that, and they didn't get around to hitting the button or writing the check. And uh, they should do that now. And so I hope to inspire a few people more out of this contest yet. Ray Blonde, Ray the, mm. Ray the Green Guy in Minnedosa, one of our loyal texters, uh, part of our start family. Uh, Ray, thanks for this. And uh, what a wonderful yeah. way to close out the year. Generosity of Manitobans never surprises us, but this is a, a ton of money raised with just a couple of bags of treats. And the whole shout out thing with the bugle. And I feel like you've just, you've, you nailed it, Ray. Thanks, Uncle Ray. Happy 2023. We kick off this half hour with technology, which is sort of acting up in our studio right now. So it's distracting me. We love our tech. It's yes. something most of us can't uh, live without. But some are saying they may not uh, live because of this. This is a serious situation. A phone, a smart home, and a digitally connected car are all tools of digital domestic violence Experts say is on the rise. Amy Fitzgerald heads up the BC Society of Transition Houses and says abusers are using it to track partners or exes in real time, post harmful content online and impersonate, harass or threaten using a variety of technologies. All of these methods that are sort of presented as advances in technology, whether it's a smart home or a smart car, it's just another method of surveillance, and it can be used to harass survivors in a variety of different ways. So in a survey in British Columbia, it found 89% of the 137 respondents said women they had worked with had disclosed some form of technology-facilitated abuse. The Tech Safety Project Manager, that's an actual position at the Women's Shelter Canada, says digital forms of domestic abuse began increasing in 2020 as tech became more integrated into our lives due to social distancing requirements. That organization is even launching a national website on tech-facilitated gender-based violence next year. With us on the start, frequent contributor to 680 CJOB and cybersecurity expert Ritesh Kotak. Good morning, Ritesh. Thanks for popping on with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We know there's a dark side to technology. So how concerning is it to to someone like you that we're seeing this spike in individuals using it to cause harm? It is concerning because here's the thing is when it when it comes to technology, I'm a big believer that technology is an enabler. But it kind of when it gets weaponized against population, especially especially individual uh, tech, what we call tech facilitated violence. 
that is when it becomes extremely concerning to me. And, um, and you know, you mentioned the, the tech safety manager um, at shelters. That's now becoming an actual position. I've come across numerous individuals focusing on that very area because it is such a big concern and growing problem within our society. As you mentioned, uh, Ritesh, it is a balance here because so much of a, so much, many of us, almost all of us, benefit from technology, whether we want it to or not. But now to have it weaponized is disturbing, and to have these shelters having to create uh, these distinct positions in order to keep uh, their clients safe is almost—it's bone chilling, really. What can be done about this? Yeah, so so there's there's a couple elements of this. There is the regulatory element where there are laws on the books that could be and should be enforced against individuals that weaponize these types of technology. But what is the role of these trust safety managers is essentially they do an inventory of what an in, what a victim may have. So do they have a smartphone? What are their apps on it? Do they have smart home devices? Um and they will literally go through them to see who has access to them. Is location disabled? Um, where are things being saved? Who has access to those records? Because a lot of this stuff is manual. So there's a couple of things that can be done. Obviously, the first one is the, the legislation element and enforcing it. But the second one is having more of these rules because a lot of this stuff isn't it, – it, There's it's not a checklist. Every situation is different. It requires time requires patience and requires technical know-how to ensure that somebody's safe in the physical world as well as the digital world. You mentioned smart home devices. It really caught my attention. This is something uh, that we have for convenience with our lights and and, uh, the home learning our patterns and and whatnot. And of course, typically there are security devices attached to those. So talk about how those are being weaponized, Ritesh. Sure. So there's horror stories where individuals have... um, have turned on lights and turned off lights, open doors. Uh, just think about what is actually connected. You got the thermostat that is connected, lights that may be connected. There's connected um, just about anything, I guess, is, is is connected. Now, you might even have one of those, um, like a Alexa in your house or one of those Google Homes where uh, voice can be transmitted over these devices as well. So you can see that it can create a very scary situation. It's not just the home. There's the vehicle as well. And then there's mobile tracking and we saw uh, we saw this recently with air tags literally being placed on vehicles or being placed in individuals backpacks they're small they're easy to conceal um so these types of devices these third-party devices were being weaponized as well now vendors have stood up and said um you know this is unacceptable we will release information to law enforcement and create a safety mechanism so you can be better informed if one of these tracking devices is actually following you but again, that requires technical know-how, and that is uh, that is kind of where the gap currently exists. Are there any telltale signs that somebody might be tracking you through an air tag or a, a tile or or something mm-hmm. like that on your car or on your on your person? Yeah. So what now? What these devices are doing because of tech-facilitated violence, in particular is they've built logic into the algorithm. So in other words, um, if an AirTag, for example, is connected to my iTunes account, and all of a sudden it realizes that there's it's, it's being followed and my, uh, an account with my iTunes account is not, uh, is not present, what the algorithm does is it notifies the individual 
that, hey, there's a device, a AirTag, that might be following you. And the, and the individual has the ability now to play a sound and locate it. Again, I think you'd need an iPhone for that to happen. So if you have an Android, how does that work? Um, these are These are real questions. But I think vendors are now building in these types of safety mechanisms to prevent the weaponization of this type of technology. Ritesh, unfortunately, I think we've just scratched the surface on this discussion, uh, but we're out of time. We'll have to bring you on again to to complete the discussion and, and broaden it somewhat and find out what gov- what else you know governments and, and technology providers can do to, to help keep us safe from this technology that meant, is meant to make our lives better. We appreciate you immensely, Ritesh, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. We are giving away a four-pack of tickets to see Ukraine's under-25 hockey team as they make their way to the World University Games, the winter edition. They're stopping in Winnipeg for an exhibition game. This is going to be awesome. It is. I know you're going to Mm -hmm. the game. Thousands are doing so. More tickets were released, by the way. Yesterday, we were saying there were maybe 40, 50 tickets left. They've opened up a couple more sections. So if you go to Ticketmaster, uh, you can get tickets in behind one of the nets now. And uh, we have four tickets to the listener with the best return story. And Julie... For as good of stories as we've had all morning, when this one came in... It was a no-brainer. It's sort of the winner, and you'll know why. Oh, 100%. Like, Colin's mother-in-law won the lottery when she placed an (laughs) order on Amazon. She ordered jeans from Amazon. He says, not sure how that works. Me neither. With clothes? Like clothes on Amazon? That's that's tough. It's different. Anyway, a week later, package shows up quite a bit smaller than what they would expect the jeans to be in. Somehow, she received a movie projector, and her jeans went to Nova Scotia. She called Amazon, who told her they would resend the jeans. And by the way, just keep that projector because it's it's a huge hassle to send it back. Come on. So she keeps it, waits patiently for these jeans. A week later, package shows up. Same size box. You got it. Another projector. Colin says, needless to say, we now have one in our house, another at the lake. Her mother-in-law, his mother-in-law got her jeans for a great price, finally. Yeah, two projectors later. They even gave her cash off for the hassle of the jeans taking so long. For all the detail in that story, that's the one that gets me. And now, and now these jeans have won Colin four tickets as well. Congratulations, Colin. Thank you for sharing that story. Maybe we should be congratulating uh, Colin's mother-in-law because she's currently the champion. Yeah, no kidding. But uh, like, what are the chances that she's ever winning the lottery? Like, she's like, I think she's used it up, right? She's peaked. Yeah, peaked. Joining us now is Mitchell Clinton of Jets Television, Jets TV. Good morning, Mitchell. Good morning. How are you folks this fine morning? Well, we're doing very well. We're uh, enjoying uh, one of the last, uh, the second last program of the year, last second last work day of the year. But I know you've got a busy couple of days coming up, Mitchell. Uh, before we get into the Jets and what's going on, 
I, I have a little bit of a pet peeve when it comes to uh, language that the kids are speaking these days. And I want to know, because you're sort of in the, you're in a younger generation than I am. And when growing up, whenever I saw the VS, you know, Montreal, VS, mm-hmm. Winnipeg, VS was short for verses. Correct. But now I hear the kids saying verse. Yep. Or they'll ask the question, who are the Jets versing? Ah. Where do you fall on that whole verse versing versus stuff, Clinton? Uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna side with you on that one. I have I have heard a lot of more verse and versing than I think I I ever have uh, previously. But I'm of the I don't know. I guess you could say older generation where I would say verses. Yeah, 100%. I thought you were an old soul. I knew it, Mitchell Clinton. <laughs> I, was, I remember when I was a kid, like what DS stood for was just like this mysterious thing. And it would pop up on like NHL 94 or something. And I had no idea what it meant. And my mom had to kind of give me the outline of what uh, that it, it was actually short for a word as opposed to just two letters that I had no idea what they meant. So you started off so strong. You had us in your court and then you had to hit us with the, you didn't know what it was in NHL 94. Yeah, but he made up for it with the (laughs) NHL 94 reference. So I say he's at the very least even. Okay. All right. Yeah. You you come out of this one. The theme of the day is balance. So we're balancing and we're also, uh, Mitchell, before we let you go, we're going to ask you about your best return story, returning something to the store, but we got to talk jets first. Uh, Sam Gagne is going to play in his 1000th game in the national hockey league. Uh, that is typically accompanied by, I think what they call the silver stick. Mm -hmm. He's only been a jet for 31 of his 999 games. Games, uh, but what's his impact been with this club so far this season? I think it's been a lot because a lot of Sam Gagne's story is based so much on his willingness to evolve and change his game. Like when he came into the National Hockey League in 2007, I mean, he was one of those guys that, you know, he scored at every level he played at, and that was kind of how he identified his game. And of course, you know, you, you do almost any Google or YouTube search of Sam Gagne and what's going to come up is his eight point night that he had it back in 2012. So clearly, you know, it was something he was able to do, but over the course of his career, you know, he's had a few separate stints in the American hockey league. And he recalled yesterday when he was kind of doing some reflection, just about one particular year, he was in Toronto playing in the American hockey league. And he had to, he realized, you know, like I've got to play my game a little bit differently than what I used to. And he talked about, you know, being a little bit better in the neutral zone, finding a way to be a little bit different of a play driver and also adapt to playing on different special teams. He became a little bit more of a penalty killer. Now he still has the skill to be on the power play as he is with the Winnipeg Jets right now. But at the same time, he knew he had to be a little bit more versatile and bring more to the ice every night than just, Hey, I can put points up because as you know, he continues to get a little bit older and the players got a little bit younger that he was going up against, you know, there's, uh, a little bit of a difference in speed, but he said throughout his career, he's he's heard he's too small, he's heard he's too slow, but throughout the whole way, he's had the support of his family. His dad, uh, Dave, is a former NHLer as well, never got to 1,000 games. He got to like 946, so clearly Sam hitting 1,000 games tonight is going to be such a special moment for him, his family, and uh, just shows what, uh, what you're capable of doing if you're willing to evolve and change and uh, adapt with the times. 
It's going to be a, a definitely a moving ceremony. Looking forward to that. Now, of course, I think all of our kids lament the fact that they have to go to practice and practice and practice, and then you got to <laughs> wait for the game. In this case, uh, the reverse has been true for the Jets. Um, they've played lots of games, not an opportunity to practice a whole heck of a lot, but they got to do that Wednesday. What got accomplished there? Lots, <laughs> to say the very least. Uh, Scott Arneal was saying yesterday, he's the associate coach here, and uh, he was saying when the coaches first were kind of putting together a practice plan, they had about two and a half hours planned. They're like, oh, well, we can't really do that. That's a little bit overboard. So they got it down to 50 minutes. But uh, one thing that kind of stood out, especially from the game against Minnesota, was the details of their game were just a little bit off. And I thought Josh Morrissey put it really well yesterday. He said, you know, I can be coming up the ice and if we're on our game, you know, we got guys that are maybe just like five feet to the left of where they were against Minnesota. And five feet doesn't sound like a whole lot, but when you're on a nice, on a nice sheet and you're going up against uh, the kind of competitions the Winnipeg Jets are every night, five feet makes a whole lot of difference. Sometimes that means a pass is there or a pass is not there. And when the Winnipeg Jets are on their game, you know, all those details are right all over the ice, whether it's positioning, uh, their forecheck, defensive uh, structure, all that stuff. So when you're not practicing, sometimes you don't have a chance to reiterate some of those things. And practice yesterday started out, it almost looked like a, a CFL walkthrough. They would be kind of be in formation on a faceoff and then run a quick breakout kind of at a, about half speed. Then they'd speed it up just a little bit more just to try to reiterate some of those roots. So I think it was just a really good back-to-basics and fundamentals type of practice. And that can sometimes uh, pay a lot of dividends, especially when you've only had, I think yesterday was Winnipeg's second practice in the month of December. So you haven't had the opportunity to do that. Sometimes those details, by no fault of anyone, they just kind of slip just a little bit. And, I mean, against the National Hockey League competition, that little bit can uh, basically exploit you in a number of different ways. So um, I'd expect the Winnipeg Jets to be, a motivated group tonight, not only to get back in the win column, but also for uh, Gagne's 1,000. Well, and when you when you also when you realize the Jets in the last month have six, seven, eight regulars out of their lineup, that's mm-hmm. obviously uh, going to uh, mess with your chemistry and and the whole idea of knowing where players are going to be without having to look for them. That obviously uh, goes out the window as well. So sometimes those decision uh, making processes are, are are a little bit uh, uh, lengthier. Mitchell, we promise before we, we let you run here. Have you taken stuff back to the store? Are you are, are you uh, uh, like is shopping um, recreation sport for you? You go buy something and you ponder it, take it back, or you good at, at returning stuff that that I, that maybe is two years old or something? <laughs> you know what? I'm not the best at it, but my wife, I marvel at some of the skills she's got in that oh. regard because it's just because sometimes she'll find something and she's one of those people that she's like, you know what, I'm just going to keep the receipt with this just in case kind of thing. And I'm like, well, you bought it. We've got it. Like, like, so I just, I lose track of things that we have in the house. And then one day she'll be like, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and return that thing I bought last month or whatever. And and I'm like, do we even know where the receipt is? Oh yeah. I've got it. So, you know, taped to the, I'm good to go. She's very prepared that way. Um, Whereas me, you know, as soon as I get in the door with something, I'm like, oh, what's this receipt in my pocket? And I get rid of it, you know? <laughs> and uh, so then if I ever want to return something, I'm pretty much, you know, out of luck. So for her, she's kind of the expert in, in that regard for sure uh, in our household. And uh, she often shakes her head at me when I try to go and attempt to return something 
time we got to spend 45 minutes looking for the receipt. I like it. The receipt, the box, you keep it all in one spot, and away you go. How about we just send Vancouver home with a loss? I like it. There we go. Return to sender. That's right. Without a win. Mitchell Clinton, thanks for this. Happy New Year to you. I know your mom listens from time to time as well. Happy uh, New Year to Mitchell's mom, and we'll, (laughs) we'll catch up with you soon. We appreciate this always. I gave her the heads up that I was going to be on this morning, so I'm sure she's listening and appreciates it. So happy New Year to you guys, too.